My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. The Six to Eight Wives of Ivan the Terrible. What 16th century megalomaniac monarch magnified the power of his nation, ordered the violent executions of thousands of his own people, became obsessed with fathering male heirs, and went through at least six wives, several of whom were murdered? Why Ivan the Terrible, Tsar of Russia, of course. In fact, he outdid Henry VIII of England in many terrible ways, including having not six unfortunate spouses, but as many as eight. The exact number is still debated by historians, but six or eight, they would all come to regret their wedding vows. Let's meet the women who were unfortunate enough to call one of the most evil men in history their husband. After the terror of his childhood, it's little wonder that Ivan turned out so terrible himself. His very birth was believed to have been cursed. His father, Vasily, Grand Prince of Moscow, had been married for 20 years, but his wife had failed to give him an heir. So he locked her up in a convent and married again to a beautiful 16-year-old named Elena Glinskaya. A priest condemned the sinful second marriage. You will have a wicked son. Your states will be prey to terror and tears. Rivers of blood will flow. Cities will be devoured in flames. It took Elena four tense years to become pregnant. And it was rumored that she brought Salmi witches from northern Finland to help her conceive using black magic. But on a stormy night in August 1530, Ivan was born. The prince grew up in a hostile environment of political intrigue and violence. When he was just three, his father died of an abscess on his leg. The toddler was proclaimed Grand Prince of Moscow, and his mother Elena acted as regent. She tried desperately to protect Ivan and his younger brother Yuri and run the government. She fended off the claims of her brothers-in-law and had them both imprisoned. But the boyars, Russia's noble families, would stop at nothing to claim power. 
At 27, Grand Princess Elena was poisoned. Her son's governess was arrested for the crime. Without his mother, eight-year-old Ivan was completely vulnerable. The Boyar families struggled to control the throne, and the young prince was held prisoner by whoever was in power. Ivan and Yuri were neglected, dressed in dirty rags, and often had to beg for food. If the Grand Prince was needed for a presentation to important state visitors, he would be bathed, dressed in finery, and paraded out, only to be ignored again once the guests departed. At least 14 people close to him were murdered during his youth. Moscow's high priest was beaten to death, and a group of men were skinned alive right before his impressionable eyes. The damaged boy began expressing his own cruelty by throwing dogs and cats from the belfry of the cathedral. At the age of 13, Ivan made a power play to wrest back control. During a Christmas banquet, the teenage prince stood up and accused the boyars of treason. You have all conspired to steal my throne, but I will be satisfied if one among you, Prince Andrei Shuisky, is punished. Shuisky was dragged to the kennels where Ivan's dogs ripped him apart. With this act, Ivan made it clear that the boyar's struggles were over and the throne now belonged to him alone. At 16, Ivan had himself crowned in a lavish coronation, not merely as Grand Prince of Moscow, but the first Tsar of all the Rus. The title Tsar derives from the ancient Roman title Caesar, meaning emperor. Ivan declared Moscow to be the third Rome, the second being Constantinople, the heart of the Byzantine Empire from which earlier Russian rulers had adopted their religion and a great deal of cultural and artistic influence. Thus, he established the Tsardom of Russia, with Moscow at its heart. Though not yet the full expanse of Russia today, Ivan's empire stretched one million square miles, dwarfing all the kingdoms in Western Europe. A month after his coronation, Ivan invited all the noble houses of Russia to travel to Moscow and present their eligible daughters before him so that he might choose a bride. Between 500 and 1,500 young women were paraded before the teenage Tsar. This custom, known as a bride show, was common practice among rulers of Russia and the Byzantine Empire. The lady selected from the many candidates was Anastasia Romanovna, daughter of a boyar named Roman Yurovich Zurkine. Ivan had likely met or at least seen Anastasia during their childhood, as her father and uncles were members of the court. She had been raised by her mother and educated primarily in religion and domestic skills, as was typical for upper-class girls of the time. Anastasia was a beauty of small stature with fine and soft features, dark eyes and rich chestnut hair. She had a kind and mild personality and was pious and honest in character. In typical sour grapes fashion, many noble families decried Ivan's choice as they considered Anastasia beneath the greatness of the Tsar. They would have preferred one of their own daughters be crowned his Tsarina. 
Ivan and Anastasia were married at the Cathedral of the Annunciation. She was 16, the same age as her groom, and the pair got on well and had an affectionate relationship. She calmed his volatile nature and harsh tendencies, and she was one of the few people he trusted and listened to. The years of their marriage were the happiest of Ivan's life, and a golden age for his court. The Poles, Germans, Turks, and English all sought peaceful relations with Ivan. An envoy from Queen Elizabeth I of England recorded of the royal couple, he being young and riotous, she ruled him with admirable affability and wisdom. Ivan ordered the construction of St. Basil's Cathedral, which remains one of the most recognizable landmarks in Russia. Anastasia and Ivan's first two children were daughters, Anna and Maria, but they both died within their first year of life from common childhood ailments. In 1552, a son and heir, Dmitri, was delivered, and the Tsar rejoiced. Ivan made the boyars swear loyalty to his son and named him the first Tsarevich of Russia, the title of the heir apparent. Ivan decided to take his wife and baby son on a pilgrimage to St. Cyril's Monastery. A monk warned the Tsar that he should not go such a long way with his wife and newborn lad, but Ivan wasn't one to heed advice. While traveling down the river, the royal boat was hit by a wave and overturned. Baby Dmitri was dropped by his wet nurse. The adults managed to escape, but by the time they got to Dmitri, he had drowned. Anastasia gave birth to three more children, Ivan, Eudoxia, and Fyodor. The daughter, Eudoxia, died at 20 months of age, but the sons, Ivan and Fyodor, both survived to adulthood. While he may have been tender at home, Ivan was ruthless everywhere else. He created a standing army and firmed up the Russian feudal system, establishing a hierarchy of localized governments, all of which was designed to weaken the power of the boyars and consolidated into his own hands. Ivan left no doubt that the boyars owed their position to him and felt no qualms about destroying them at will. Though, thanks to Anastasia's mediations, most were spared execution. When the Tsar learned of corruption among a group of local officials, he had all 70 of them stripped naked in the snow and had their beards burned off, but he didn't have them killed. His ferocity earned the Tsar countless enemies but he feared assassination at every turn and guarded his own safety fanatically. Anastasia was a more vulnerable target. In the summer of 1560, after 13 years of marriage, Anastasia fell ill with a raging fever. Doctors were unable to treat the ailing Tsarina, and Ivan watched helpless as his beloved wife suffered and died at the age of 29. The heartbroken Tsar had a complete emotional collapse. He banged his head on the floor and smashed his furniture. He tore his hair out and ripped his clothes. At his wife's funeral, he cried uncontrollably and could barely stand. 
Courtiers had to support him so that he could walk behind her coffin. All the people of Moscow came to Ascension Convent to bury their first beloved Tsarina. Ivan emerged from the ordeal a changed man. He had lost his mother to poison, and he was now convinced that his beloved wife had been taken from him in the same fashion. Though he had no evidence of foul play, he turned on everyone around him. Once trusted advisors and generals were imprisoned, tortured, and executed. Several of the prominent Boyar families were wiped out. It was said, the closer to the Tsar, the closer to death. 20th century examination of Anastasia's remains found extremely high levels of mercury, so Ivan was right to suspect that she had been poisoned. Even though he was heartbroken, Ivan needed to remarry. He had two young sons, but as four of his six offspring had already died, this was not enough to secure the future of his dynasty. Negotiations for the hand of Catherine Jagiellon, daughter of King Sigismund I of Poland, fell through. The Tsar was instead captivated by a beautiful young woman who was presented to him at the Russian court. She was a Kyrgyzstan Muslim by the name of Khoishane bint Temur. Anastasia had warned Ivan on her deathbed not to marry a pagan. So when he declared that he would marry Khoishane, she converted to Russian Orthodoxy and took the Christian name Maria Timoryaknova. She was 16, just as Anastasia had been on their wedding day and Ivan hoped to recapture his lost happiness with his new bride. But he soon regretted marrying her. Maria did not integrate well into Russian society and was hated by the court, who considered her illiterate, manipulative, and vindictive. Rumors of witchcraft circled her, as they did many other 16th century women in power. She was also considered a poor stepmother to Ivan's two young sons, Ivan and Fyodor. Maria gave birth to a son of her own, Vasily, but he died within a year of his birth. Ivan's top general defected to Lithuania and invaded Russia's western border. This blatant defiance outraged the Tsar and made him all the more paranoid about the loyalty of those around him. Like Anastasia, Maria had a great deal of influence on her husband, though hers was not always as benevolent. Some historians believe it was she who incited him to his next power play. The Tsar and Tsarina packed their bags and left the Kremlin. Ivan sent a letter back to the people of Moscow, complaining that the boyars were stealing from him and that he was not being allowed to rule. So he abdicated the throne. Without a Tsar, the country feared chaos and civil war. Just as Ivan had hoped, the people begged him to return. He agreed only on the condition that he be allowed to punish his enemies without constraint. And so the real terror began. Ivan created the Oprichniki, a corps of fearsome secret police. 6,000 men recruited from the dregs of society. They dressed in black cloaks, rode black horses, and were given free reign to terrorize the Russian people into total submission to the Tsar's will. 
With Ivan's blessing, the Ulprichniki targeted Boyar families, turned them out of their homes, raped the women, and tortured or outright killed the men. The Tsar himself became a connoisseur of torture and enjoyed inventing new methods of mutilation and murder. He roasted people alive and blew up priests with gunpowder so that they would be shot straight to heaven. Ivan himself wrote that a Tsar has to inspire terror, and so he earned the nickname Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible. He became convinced, without evidence, that the city of Novgorod was on the verge of rebellion. So he rode to Novgorod at the head of the Oprichniki army, and they rained death upon the city. Hundreds of citizens were hanged or tied in bags and thrown in the icy river. After a month of devastation, the city of Novgorod was gone. While Ivan was busy decimating his own people, Russia's longtime nemesis, the Tatars, took the opportunity to ride in and burn Moscow to the ground. The wooden metropolis was destroyed in three hours, and 160,000 people died. So many bodies were dumped in the river that it changed course. Many who survived the Holocaust were sold into slavery. After the disaster in the heart of the empire, Ivan's fury burned out. But like any good psychopath, he refused to accept responsibility. He blamed the Oprichniki for failing to protect the capital and disbanded them. Tsarina Maria may also have been a victim of her husband's bloodlust. At the age of 25, after nine years of marriage, she fell dead from poison. Though Ivan had 20 servants tortured on suspicion of her assassination, it is believed that he killed her himself. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Over the next decade, the rest of Ivan's wives would come fast and furious. The Tsar called for another bride show, and from the 12 finalists, he selected 
Marfa Sobekina to be his third wife. The 18-year-old beauty was the daughter of a merchant, a surprisingly lowly choice for a tsar, but his relationship with the noble families wasn't exactly friendly. Ivan also wed his 17-year-old son and heir, Ivan Ivanovich, to one of the brideshow contestants he himself had rejected. Marfa's mother was eager that her daughter might please the Tsar by conceiving quickly and bearing him a son, so she fed her a potion meant to increase her fertility. By the wedding day, Marfa was rapidly losing weight and could barely stand up at the altar. She died 16 days into her honeymoon. Ivan naturally suspected poison, and his paranoia grew. He put yet more people to death, including his second wife's brother, who was impaled. In 1849, Lev May wrote The Tsar's Bride, which dramatizes Marfa's life and death. Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov transformed the play into an opera, and it remains a repertoire piece in Russia. With three brides buried, Tsar Ivan turned his gaze to the runner-up in the previous bride show, Anna Koltovskaya. She was the daughter of a courtesan, a sex worker who catered to the nobles of the court. But the church wasn't keen on allowing the Tsar to marry for a fourth time. Russian Orthodox law stated that the first marriage is law, the second an extraordinary concession, the third is a violation of the law, the fourth is an impiety, a state similar to that of animals. Ivan met the high-ranking priests at the Church of the Assumption. He claimed that because of Marfa's frail health, he had never consummated that marriage, and it therefore didn't count he compelled them to bless this one final marriage, and they agreed with a few conditions. Ivan could not attend church until Easter, and for a year he must spend his time with penitence. The Tsar took his new bride on a honeymoon to Novgorod, the city which only two years earlier he had massacred. What a romantic! But after two years of marriage, Anna failed to become pregnant. He banished her to a convent where she spent the rest of her life. She was one of only two wives to outlive the monstrous monarch. Ivan moved on to wife number five, Anna Vasilchikova. By this time, the church flat out refused to bless any more of the Tsar's marriages. Little is known of Anna's background, and she only lasted as Tsarina for a year before she too was banished to a convent for failing to get pregnant. Vasilisa Melintayeva was wife number six, or maybe not. She may be referred to in a court document as a concubine to the Tsar, but many historians now believe she was made up in the 19th century to exaggerate Ivan's terribleness as though that were needed. Alexander Ostrovsky wrote a play about Vasilisa in 1867. The story of Vasilisa is that she was the widow of a war hero whom the Tsar took to his bed after banishing the two Annas. But when Ivan discovered that she was having an affair with a prince, he forced her to watch as her lover was impaled and then sent her to join his previous wives at the convent. Seventh wife, Maria Dolgarukaya, 
also fails to appear in official records, and may too have been a 19th century fantasy. The story goes that the aging Tsar discovered his young bride was not a virgin on their wedding night, and in a rage, he had her drowned. Wife number eight, or six, Maria Nagaya, did undoubtedly exist, and had the distinction of being the elderly Tsar's last unfortunate spouse. The surly and bitter 50-year-old king treated his 28-year-old bride coldly, and would have banished her to a convent as well, had she not bore him a son. Ivan named his last child Dmitri, after his firstborn son who had died more than 30 years earlier. He offered to divorce Maria in order to marry Elizabeth I's cousin, Mary Hastings, but the English queen declined. While Ivan had cut back on the wholesale massacre of his people, he was still an abusive tyrant at home, since arranging his son Ivan Ivanovich's marriage at 17, he had demanded that his daughter-in-law become pregnant at once. When she failed to do so, he had her banished to a convent and replaced. Then he had the replacement replaced. The Tsarevich was now on wife number three. Yelena Sheremitiva, and she was finally pregnant. But Ivan accused her of wearing immodest clothing and disrespecting him. He flew into a rage and beat her, causing her to miscarry the long-awaited child. Hearing her screams, the Tsarevich rushed to his wife's defense. An argument ensued, and the Tsar struck his heir in the temple with his scepter. The Tsarevich fell to the floor, bleeding, and Ivan immediately ran to him, cradled him, kissed his face, and tried to stop the bleeding. He cried, May I be damned, I've killed my son, I've killed my son. Ivan Ivanovich died, and with him, the Tsar's hopes for the future. He prayed for days for his son to be miraculously resurrected, but to no avail. In his final years, Ivan the Terrible unraveled. He was haunted by the many thousands he had murdered, not least of which his own son and unborn grandchild. But he never truly accepted his own responsibility for the bloodshed. He wrote to an old enemy, Why did you separate me from my wife, Anastasia? If you hadn't taken my young wife from me, there would have been no bloody victims. Ivan became increasingly frail and spent most of his time locked in his room playing chess, which is what the 53-year-old Tsar was doing when a stroke ended his life. Or he may have been strangled by one of the many, many enemies he had made over the 51 years of his horrifying reign. Tsarina Maria was granted nothing in her husband's will. She lived on the property of her son, Dmitri, who had been bequeathed the town of Aglich. While one might hope that Ivan the Terrible's death would ring in happier days for Russia, it actually resulted in an even worse era, known as the Time of Troubles. Ivan's next surviving son, Fyodor, followed him as Tsar, but he was ill-prepared and probably intellectually disabled. 
During his 14-year reign, Boyars overran the government. His younger brother, Dmitri, died at the age of nine. The official story was that he had stabbed himself in the throat during an epileptic seizure, but his mother was pretty sure that he had been assassinated by order of Tsar Fyodor's regent, Boris Godunov, to prevent him making any claims on the throne. To silence Maria, Godunov accused her of neglecting her son and had her entire family incarcerated. Tsar Fyodor died childless at the age of 40. He was the last surviving child of Ivan the Terrible. The Godunov family tried to hold on to power, but a Polish man claiming to be Tsarevich Dmitri gained the support of the Russian people and the Polish-Lithuanian army. He claimed that his mother, Maria Nagaya, had foreseen the assassination, hidden him away, and allowed the murderers to stab an imposter child in the neck. Maria herself backed up his story and confirmed he was her long-lost son. Dmitri invaded Moscow, took the throne, and in thanks freed Maria and her family from imprisonment. He reigned for 11 months, but when he exhumed the body of the real Dmitri in order to prove that it was the body of another, Maria was so offended that she turned on him and declared him an imposter. The boyars killed the false Dmitri, burned his body, stuffed his ashes in a cannon, and fired him back home to Poland. Russia, crippled by internal chaos and a devastating famine, was vulnerable to attack. Sweden and Poland invaded, and King Władysław IV of Poland claimed the Russian throne for three years. He imprisoned the Patriarch of the Russian Church, who, on his deathbed, pled to the Russian people to rise up and claim back their nation and they answered his call. Boyars and peasants banded together to form militias, and they retook Moscow. But they knew they needed a strong ruler to survive. A national assembly convened to elect a new Tsar. Many candidates were dismissed, as the assembly wanted someone with blood ties to the rightful Tsar, Ivan the Terrible. Finally, a grandson of the brother of Ivan's first wife, Anastasia Romanovna, was unanimously elected. Mikhail Romanov was 16 years old and living in a convent with his mother. She initially refused, not wishing to send her young son into the jaws of the Kremlin. But Mikhail was eager to be taken out of obscurity and placed on the throne. He reigned for 32 considerably more harmonious years and founded the Romanov dynasty. And thus the family of first wife Anastasia ruled over Russia for the next 300 years until their downfall in the Russian Revolution. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I'll be putting out new episodes every Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos, unburying some of my favorite hidden gems, and adding even more fascinating information for your listening pleasure. 
Want some visuals with your history? Then check out my YouTube channel, History Tea Time with Lindsay Holiday, where you can find hundreds of videos about queens of the world, royal history, women's history, and more. You can also follow History Tea Time on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like Queen's Podcast, Ancient History Fangirl, Redacted History, and more. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.